National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, August 30th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security challenges and opportunities. Every so often here on National Security This Week, we take time to consider multiple crises around the world, and we have a dialogue with a single guest, sometimes multiple guests, as we consider the ramifications of those crises on American national security interests. Joining us today for such a dialogue is Professor Anthony Lott from the Department of Political Science at the College of St. Olaf. Professor Lott joined the department as an assistant professor of political science in 2005. He received his doctorate in international studies at the Graduate School of International Studies at the University of Denver in 2002. He's the author of Creating Insecurity, Realism, Constructivism, and U.S. Security Policy, and numerous articles in political science and law journals. His research interests include an exploration of norms and interests in international th- relations theory, cooperation in global government uh, environmental politics, excuse me, and national and international security policy. Prior to his appointment at St. Olaf, Professor Lott taught at Portland State University, Hamlin University, and the University of Glasgow. Tony Lott, welcome back to National Security This Week. John, it is good to see you again. We have lots to talk about, I think. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. What have you been up to uh, over the summer break? I taught a couple courses at, at St. Olaf, which was it was fun. It was nice to, to kind of keep up with the students and see what's going on in their lives. And uh, then I spent a couple of weeks up north on the North Shore, like all Minnesotans are supposed to do, I think, right, at least right. once a summer. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I personally have failed on the, uh, the North Shore uh, vacation, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah, me too. I, I love that place. Uh, the whole region up of the North Shore of Minnesota is so beautiful. Uh, Tony, we have a lot to cover today. Let's let's get started. We'll start with one of the bigger uh, national security challenges America faces at the moment: uh, what, what to do about Russia's uh, continued aggression in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ukrainian f- offensive started slowly uh, a few months ago. It hasn't really gained significant momentum uh, up to this point, uh, but they've been up against a tall order. The Ukrainians have with with limited forces. They've had to deal with incredibly dense minefields laid by Russian forces in areas where the Russians occupied for, for well over a year. Ukrainian sappers, as they are called, the men who have to clear minefields, have taken heavy casualties, so they're in the process of trying to replace those forces. And advancing Ukrainian forces have found themselves really kind of stopped in their tracks by these very dense minefields. Uh, there are a couple of topics for consideration here, but here, here's the first. What do you make of the Ukrainian offensive so far, and should we be overly concerned that they haven't uh, decisively broken through Russian lines and achieved victory already? Hmm. Well, that's a that's a really good question. I, I had a feeling that question was probably going to come at me in one way or another. Increasingly, I think what I'm seeing is that Ukraine is fighting this war, and the Russians are fighting some past wars. Yeah. And... That suggests to me that the, the question you ask needs to be kind of cut through in a number of different ways. I'm not overly concerned that they haven't taken more ground if we look at, at geography. I'm interested in how it looks to me we have kind of two wars going on now on the battlefields in Ukraine. In the south, 
the Ukrainians are making a real push towards towards the sea, mm-hmm. and they they have got to cut through what you rightly and correctly noted are some really dense mine defenses, anti personnel mines, some of the most destructive anti personnel mines that are you know cut people off at the knees and and things like that. Um, as well as anti-tank mines and the dragon's teeth, all of the defenses to stop momentum forward. And they're doing it. They're doing it against the Russian military. And I think if we would have asked 18 months ago, could Ukrainian sappers get anywhere close to cutting through dense Russian minefields, the answer would have been no on paper. But they are. They're innovating. They're they're working through it. They're they're thinking carefully about how they move forward. They're taking some heavy losses. It's hard to take losses um, because you have to train people very carefully to get through minefields. It's it's not like you can you can just replace one soldier with another soldier. It, there's a lot of training that's involved there, and the Ukrainians are are fighting with one hand tied behind their back. They are at the mercy of weapon systems that are unique to them. They they don't they don't anticipate necessarily what's coming into their arsenals over a long period of time. They have to accept whatever is delivered to them. That's great. They're getting a lot of sophisticated Western weapons, but that those Western weapons have to be trained on. They have to be repaired. People have to know how to repair them. You have to get them off the battlefield when they're when they're harmed. And so the logistics and the procurement and the way in which the Ukrainians are having to do some quick and heavy training um, is slowing down any momentum that they would have. Upon that, you've got these minefields. And, yeah. and the Russians spent a year just sitting there putting those together. Um, and the Russians have demonstrated that they're not real concerned with the laws in war during this particular um, war. So the Ukrainians have had to really deal with some tough stuff. Now, up in the Donbass, there's a different war, I think, taking place. And that's one of attrition that you and I have talked about before, where um, there's not a lot of movement. The Russians are probably making some minor gains in some areas. The Ukrainians are probably making some minor gains in other areas. But that looks to be a war that's going to last for a long time. That's the stalemate that... uh that we're really concerned about. That's the stalemate that I think we're concerned about. That's right. Yeah. In in a in a recent uh, controversial move, the Biden administration chose to send uh, U.S.-made cluster munitions uh, to Ukraine to use on the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, this move was condemned by both uh, the right and left here in the United States, and and frankly uh, by many countries around the world as well, because there is a ban on cluster munitions internationally. Uh, what about the arguments from both ends of the political spectrum do you think are valid? And are the counter-arguments shared by the Biden administration and by the Ukrainian government uh, stronger arguments for using cluster munitions against Russian forces? War is a tough thing. There are compromises that need to be made morally uh, to justify actions on the battlefield and elsewhere. Um, There are a long set of laws and norms that go back to um, Byzantine 
times and um, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and elsewhere. And you can draw a line from those early limitations on war to what we think of today of, as the Geneva Conventions and the Hague Conventions and the, the laws of armed conflict. Decisions get really muddy when you look at something like cluster munitions. So I think that, you know, your first question, what are the legitimate arguments from the left and the right? Um, there are legitimate concerns. If you use cluster munitions, not all of them explode. Um, and you have a battlefield that was once arable land that then needs to be dealt with. Demined, basically. Demined yeah. post-war. Yeah. yeah. Unexploded um, ordinance has to be dealt with. That's right. Yep. And it's hard to do that. Uh, if you if you ever talk to somebody who's involved in um, removing explosive ordinances, there's a long process yeah. involved in that. And and to be able to say that a particular piece of land is cleared of mines, that's that's a that's a tough thing to yeah, actually a, a say. A hundred percent certainty that all of the unexploded ordinance or mines are cleared. That's, that's exactly a hard right. thing to do. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yep. So putting those types of munitions on the on the battlefield creates a, a post-war problem. And I think it's a legitimate one because, of course, one of the laws in war is that you don't target non-combatants. And if you, don't, if you have a, a non-discriminatory weapon, like a cluster munition, you don't know whether it's going to be a farmer um, after the war or, or a, a soldier during the war or a kid, kid. playing soccer. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yeah. But the uh, the decision was made. The Ukrainians were actually requesting uh, this this particular type of ordinance. Uh, why do you think they specifically asked for cluster munitions? Well, they're effective. I mean, that's I know that's a, that's that's a short answer, but they're effective. And on a pragmatic level, the Ukrainians, like I said before, they're fighting with one hand tied behind their back in some ways. They're the aggressed upon. The Russians are there in in their land, and they've got to figure out how to fight the battle that they have before them. And the battle that they have before them is an intelligent one from the Russian perspective, right? You spend all winter mining the, the, the front line, and then you place artillery on the other side of that. And what happens is you send soldiers and armored vehicles into that minefield if you're the ukrainians you can't get through fast enough the artillery hits you and and it's this it's this kind of terrible slaughter so what can you do to defend yourself against that and and still try to move forward you can drop cluster munitions on those artilleries um, and you can drop cluster munitions on the minefields and you can hope to to clear a path through and and do it in a in a way that is quick enough not to be not to be attacked. Um, so it's a pragmatic decision. It's not an immoral decision, um, in the, in the sense that the Ukrainians are targeting combatants. Yeah, yeah. It's just a tough thing from a normative perspective, I think, because you're right. We have an anti uh, landmine treaty, and there's an anti cluster munitions treaty, and so yeah. you've got to deal with that. Yeah, and there are places all around the world that uh, are still suffering today uh, from uh, 
the minefields that were placed during conflicts. Cambodia is a place where it's uh, still there. I know they're still, I think, uh, still clearing mines uh, from the Bosnian or the Yugoslav Civil War. That's right. Uh, and yep. that's, that's in Europe. Yep. So, and plenty of other places around the world where you know, minefields have been laid, laid, laid indiscriminately and are still uh, causing lots of people to suffer. That's right. Uh, I want to move to a sort of an economic uh, question on this uh, topic. Uh, the Russians have seen the value of the ruble, uh, their currency, on the international market continue a downward trend over recent months. H- how do sanctions on Russia and the international pressure on the Russian economy uh, play into what we will likely see transpire as winter approaches with this conflict? Do you think the Russians will do their level best to kind of hunker down and hold what they've achieved so far? Uh, will a continuing Ukrainian offensive deny the Russians a chance to, to, to hold and consolidate their positions? And are economic conditions for Russia finally going to have a, a chilling impact on Putin's ability to continue the war? Putin, I think, is in a bit of a pickle when it comes to this particular issue. There are there are global economic forces that are are problematic for the Russian economy. And there are some internal decisions with respect to the war that are compromising what he can and cannot do. He wants to up military spending, obviously, for obvious reasons, because the Russian military has not performed in any way um, like the prognosticators thought it would at the beginning of the war, both in Russia and in the United States and in the West. I don't think anyone saw Russia's military to be as weak as as it is demonstrated. Um, So he wants to increase military spending at a time when his economy appears to be shrinking and the ruble is plummeting. And he doesn't have access to export markets like he had before. So you see him kind of do what he's done before in a number of different ways. He lashes out, right? He he ends the the grain deal. Um, he makes statements about how the the West is a fascist entity that is trying to undermine um, Russia Russia as a state itself. This is problematic, though, because it's not solving any of his problems, mm-hmm. right? So I I do think what we're going to see is that. Russia is going to have to make some decisions about the war in Ukraine because they don't have enough soldiers and they don't have enough equipment, the right kind of equipment, um, to be able to engage in the war that they want. So um, depending on how far the Ukrainians get in the south, they may be hunkering down in the Donbass, in the in kind of the northern region. And and reinforcing those minefields and hoping that that they can get through. It's, I think, interesting, John, and I'd like your perspective on this too. It's interesting to see how the the Russian military command is still based on on an archaic Soviet system um, that comes straight from almost the Politburo, um, in this case, Putin, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it it's not innovative. It's not no. it's not able to look at what's going on on the ground and rapidly change. And in today's wars, you have to be able to do that. Yeah, it's uh, the Russians are still using uh, the sort of the tactics that uh, that they used during World War II. Right. Uh, I mean, but the, but it has kind of worked for them. I mean, what, look at what they did in Syria. Uh, they basically went in and, and uh, raised cities to the ground in Syria. And that's the exact same tactics that they've used in Ukraine. 
Uh, the minefields, that's a traditional Russian tactic. They use that at uh, the Battle of Kursk yep. uh, to defeat uh, the Germans. Uh, they also use uh, artillery as sort of the, the king of battle for them. Uh, they really rely heavily on artillery, which is one of the reasons why the Ukrainians have been targeting uh, Russian artillery uh, batteries as effectively and consistently as they have because they know that the Russians rely so heavily on that. So it's making for for an interesting uh, an interesting winter that's coming up to see what kind of continued advances uh, the Ukrainians can make as they clear minefields, as they make breakthroughs. Because what they really want to do, I think, is get into a maneuver war with the Russians in open ground. I think that's exactly and, what they And want. then they will slaughter the Russians because the Russians right. are not going to do very well in that in that environment. But they got yeah. they have to get through those Russian front lines They have to first. get through those. Yep. The other thing they lack is air cover. That's and, right. And even with the F-16s that right. have been gifted to the Ukrainians, it's still going to take probably another two to three months before you're going to see any of those in combat, if, if that early. I think that's right. So. Yep. And that's rushing it. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Right. La- last topic on uh, Russia-Ukraine. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, met an untimely end, which, which you know, I don't think that plane crash was probably the the least surprising downed aircraft incident uh, the world has ever seen. <laughs> I think that's I think that's right. So he was just laid to rest in a in a ceremony, I think, a day or two ago in Russia. Prigozhin was. What's the impact on uh, the political situation in in Russia or on the Wagner Group as a private military contractor as, as a result of? Uh, Prigozhin being eliminated. Prigozhin and the Wagner Group gave some cover to Putin elsewhere in the world, especially in in Africa. And uh, that cover is gone now. It's it's now kind of exposed as what it was, just kind of a facade of of the Russian foreign policy in in sub-Saharan Africa. So I, I suppose the exposure there is is not different in in terms of of what we'll see on the ground but probably is in terms of of how it plays in public relations and in foreign affairs and 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 that um putin has lost an effective fighting weapon in ukraine and elsewhere it, it's hard for me to believe that that given prigozhin's death um his chief deputy's death and and kind of the breakup of the Wagner Group, that the, that the soldiers that were part of the Wagner Group, the mercenaries, will stick with the, the Russian military and will somehow just kind of fold themselves into, into the Russian war effort um, because they, had, they were getting paid very well and, and they had some, some latitude in terms of where they were going to go and what they were going to do and things like that. And, and I don't think that those mercenaries are, are necessarily interested in becoming soldiers on the ground in Ukraine or elsewhere at the command of, of Putin, who doesn't have the best military mind. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Tony Lott from St. Olaf College, and we're discussing crises around the world. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Tony, uh, let, let's tackle a topic that seems a bit remote for the vast majority of Americans, but one that has a sort of a significant strategic and security implication for for America, and that's the military coup in Niger. And you were just mentioning to me before we went on the air that there's a report that there's been another military coup in Gabon. 
So as of today, the military junta running Niger has committed to elections in three years, uh, free and fair elections, but no details have really been given. Uh, the junta runs the nation and doesn't appear willing to commit to any meaningful negotiations to return the civilian government to power. And, and three years uh, seems like a long time from now, especially if you're a Nigerian who, who wishes to see the rule of law and democracy return to your nation. What sparked the military coup d'etat? And what kind of pressure have nations in the region put on the Nigerian military junta to give up power? When I teach international relations or world politics, I often talk with students about causes, what caused this, what caused that. And we talk about um, some of those deep underlying structural causes and then some of the more precipitating causes. I think this is a really good example of uh, a deep cause that uh, we can talk about and and probably takes us on a, on a very long journey <laughs> through history and then a precipitating cause. What we're seeing in sub-Saharan Africa right now uh, and in West Africa uh, in former French colonies is the mechanisms by which the French controlled their colonies, which was simply to control the population and extract as many resources as possible. And I recognize that that's a, a real short version of, of the colonial process in, in but, that. But accurate. But I think it's, it's accurate and, and somewhat different from the, the way the British handled their imperial uh, designs. And so one of the issues that we're seeing is that there just was not a, a strong social political infrastructure left in many of the French colonies. And we can look at that as one of the deep causes. And that takes us on a on a long historical journey through history and colonialism and imperialism. And yeah, so forth. and in those areas, I mean, French is the spoken language. That's right. To, to this day. To this day. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The precipitating cause, though, is, uh, I think, a mix of uh, external influence by groups like Wagner mm -hmm. and internal corruption and, and just inefficient government, that they were not dealing with the security threats in the area. They were not dealing with the economic problems in the area. They were not dealing with the environmental consequences of climate change and other things that were displacing people. So I think if we look just at the precipitating cause, we see a, a really ineffective government um, at play. And that's that can be seen elsewhere too. I don't know that we'll we'll know for several days what's going on in Gabon right now, mm -hmm. but the the president of Gabon um, had he or his family had been in power for fifty some years, yeah. and um, he, he had had a stroke several years ago. Again, we have kind of this ineffective, inefficient government in a country that had vast oil wealth, but was not um, the, the the population was just not seeing that. So why should U.S. citizens be concerned about the situation in Niger? You know, why should we care? And frankly, there have been a number of military coups mm -hmm. in that region in West Africa. Why should Americans be concerned? Well, from a moral level, I, I think there's always a concern that um, all people should be concerned about how other people are able to live their good life, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think just on that, of course, we should be concerned. And I think what happens quite often, John, in um, 
in in the U.S. media and in in U.S. society at large, as well as in other places in Europe, is we get attracted to those wars like Russia and Ukraine because they're they're close, right? They're Ukraine and Russia and and Europe and the EU. That is part of the international order that was set up after World War II. It's part of kind of the institutional infrastructure that that we understand well. Um, and these other wars get marginalized, right? And yeah. yet there are still people dying there. But politically and economically, Africa is is the future in many ways. It is. The, there are natural resources there that are going to be uh, necessary for the new economies moving forward. Um, the, the there is a, a there is a, a vibrancy in terms of the the populations there. Very young. Very young, um, and and they have desires and wants and and needs and and everything else like we all do. And and if you look at kind of the demographics of that area and you look at the economic potential in that area, you also then need a stable political system in that area right and and the coups that that are now happening with a certain amount of frequency um there that undermines that ability to to um to manage the the economic plans moving forward and for other regional institutional actors like ECOWAS uh to be able to to kind of come up with economic plans and political plans moving forward yeah i know ECOWAS is uh sort of laid down the gauntlet with uh, the military junta in Niger to uh, give up power or That's... else. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I'll have to keep watch on that situation uh, over time here. Uh, I'm not personally very confident that it's going to be a peaceful outcome, especially since we're seeing more uh, military uh, coup d'etats happening. So, Right. No, I'm not either. Yeah. But speaking of destabilizing situations, I'd like to pivot uh, briefly to uh, the Balkans, a uh, place where I was uh, deployed for six and a half months back in uh, 1999. Uh, I was uh, doing operations in the Balkans there, mostly in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Croatia and whatnot. Uh, going after war criminals from the Yugoslav Civil War and, and a number of other things. Uh, what, what do you see happening in the Balkans, and, and what concerns you most right now about the situation between Serbia and Kosovo? Distraction, in one word. Um, I'm I'm real concerned that that the U.S., that NATO, um, and that the European states who have who have committed to to keeping some. Uh, some attention on the Balkans will will move elsewhere, and that and that uh, the energy to deal with these issues that are seen as distant and minor and everything else will go to Ukraine or to the South China Sea or elsewhere. Um, so my my biggest concern is actually distraction. There there isn't peace. In the Balkans, what there is is the heavy hand of 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 NATO and the United States that has kept everybody kind of within their lanes, and um, it, there's a there's a way to understand uh, the the kind of simmering discontent there as as being managed by these outside forces, and I, I am I I do not have a great deal of um, hope that 
if the United States and NATO and and the European states were to to leave or back off or be distracted, that that we wouldn't see some some real open conflicts between Kosovo and and, and Serbians and and others. Yeah, when I when I was uh, deployed in there, having conversations with. Uh you know, Bosnian Serbs, uh, Bosnian Croats, and and what are referred to as Bosniaks, the the Muslim uh, f- folks who are who are in that region. Right. Um, you would hear Bosnian Serbs refer to the Bosniaks as Turks. Yeah. And and when I was there in in ninety uh, nine, they were still angry about having lost the Battle of Kosovo Polja. <laughs> which at that time was like 710 years earlier. That, so there are long memories uh, that exist in that part of the world. There are. That's right. <laughs> I remember attending a number of the trials um, at the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague. And I would, you know, because I was teaching at either Glasgow or, or St. Olaf, I wouldn't be able to get there regularly, but I'd go every six months or a year or so. And uh, there was one particular trial that uh, was was being fought over history. And I would go at, at one time and we would be back in the 12th century. And I'd come back six months later and we would have gotten ourselves to the 13th or 14th century. And it would just continue that way. Um, and it, there is a deep sense of historical grievance there. And Tito was able to manage it during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was to, he was able to kind of create this thin veneer of a Yugoslav state. But since then, the only thing that has kept the, the peace there, and I use that word loosely, um, is the forces from outside yeah. right now. And yeah, uh, yeah that's a so I want to return back to the topic uh, of the Balkans, but we need to take a, a short uh, break to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back here on National Security This Week with Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf. And we're discussing crises around the world and why they matter to American national security interests. So, Tony, we were talking about the the simmering situation between Serbia and Kosovo uh, before we took our, our mid-show uh, commercial break. Why do tensions in this area matter? And what what might be the ramifications if uh, ethnic strife returned to the Balkans at this particular juncture in history? I think there are there are two important issues that, that we have to consider when we're looking at the Balkans right now. One is the implications for Europe and kind of the European project, which we don't talk about uh, as much as maybe we should, but this, this kind of um, 
pan-European identity, this, this, the, the, the institutional development to create uh, a, a peaceful zone. The European Union. The European Union, the Council of Europe, all of kind of that infrastructure that was put in place after World War II and has continued to build, right? Um, the, the complications of another war in the Balkans, given the current governments in Europe right now, in Italy, in Hungary, in Poland, um, and in Germany, well, and in France, the, if, if, you, if we thought about another war in the Balkans, I'm, I'm not sure what that would do to the European integration project, but it's, it wouldn't be a good one. It wouldn't be a positive, right? So I think preventing war there is important for this European project. The, the second thing, it seems to me, is... Um, and I, I hate to go back to Russia and Ukraine again, but but we see Russian meddling in this area, right? And they're doing their best, or the Putin regime is doing its best, uh, to complicate the the way in which everything is being managed right now on a security level in, in the Balkans. What's surprising to me is that Serbia has been somewhat reticent to accept the Russian line, and we're beginning to see some fracturing there. And... That's surprising just given the, the history that we were just talking about between Serbia and, and Russia. Um, but it's unsurprising in the sense that, that Russia, as weak as they are, I think they thought they could handle their issues in Syria. They could handle their issues in the Balkans. They could handle their issues in sub-Saharan Africa. And they could fight a war in Ukraine. And it's increasingly becoming obvious that they can't and yeah. that they are they're being stretched way too thin. And I and, and now we're seeing, I think, the real imbalance in power that was that was that's masked by the, the nuclear arsenals between the United States and and the and Russia. Yeah, I, I've always been, you know, having spent six and a half years or six and a half months on the ground there in the Balkans. Yeah. Uh, you know that this is this ethnic tension has been going on for a very, very long time. You you commented nicely on that. I, I personally think that the Russians are doing everything they can to try and stir up uh, that ethnic strife uh, amongst sort of the, the, the nationalist, uh, That's right. the ultra-nationalist elements inside Serbia with a grievance having lost Kosovo to the Kosovar Albanians. And so if, if I think Russia thinks from a strategic perspective, if you can create a new civil war in the Balkans, you're going to attract uh, or detract attention from what's happening in Ukraine uh, and maybe force NATO and the European Union to concentrate heavily on their own you know, front doorstep, basically, rather than, you know, on Ukraine. I think that is exactly right, and I think they're doing it wherever they can. Right? Yeah. We can go. We can go back to what we were just talking about in Niger. Um, we can look at the Balkans. I, I think the 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 long term goal here on Putin's part is to say, okay, things are not going well in Ukraine because they keep getting rearmed. Yeah. Unlike in Syria, right. right? When when the Russians were able to just use a scorched earth policy and and keep moving forward to defend the Assad regime, here. Um, that's not working. And and so they're trying to deflect and create a series of proxy wars and, and proxy conflicts all over the place. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's not working thus far. We'll see if uh, Moldova is the next place where they try and stir up even more trouble. That's uh, right. So another area that has had uh, NATO's attention for, for some time now is China. 
which I find kind of interesting. It, it doesn't seem, you know, if you look at geographically speaking, that the NATO alliance uh, would have any direct interest in events in China, let alone, you know, coastal China or, or the Western Pacific in general. Uh, so maybe you could explain it to us. What, why is NATO concerned about China and Taiwan? And what are the key issues as you see them that have the alliance's attention? Well, that's a great question. And it, it, you're right. If you look globally, just at a map, you're like, wait, what? Um, I think that there was, there's always been this historical understanding that NATO is is a place to manage European concerns. And um, there's the old line of, you know, why NATO? And it's uh, to keep the U.S. in, the Soviets out, and the Germans down. Um, that was the old line about, you know, why why we would need NATO in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, you can pick your end date for that. Um, still true today. Still true today. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. But, you know, if you look at the, if, if, you, if you look at the, the geographic area that is covered by NATO membership. It includes Canada and it includes the United States, which then pushes the North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, into the Pacific as well in terms of of the security issues. So I, I think we see a couple of things. We see the pivot by the United States towards Asian security concerns. Uh, and that includes the future transit through the Arctic and and the exploitation of the Arctic waters and all of that. Um, and it also shows the integration of the world economy today. And NATO, as we would expect a bureaucracy to do, expanded its mission after its original mission kind of disappeared at the end of the Cold War. Um, and And so now we see NATO taking on issues like the South China Sea and the way in which China is behaving um, throughout the the region. I, I, I just kind of look at this region, and I, and I consider NATO's interests are very much the same as ours, uh, and they're heavily dependent upon economic concerns for the most part, I, I would say. Right. Uh, China has a near monopoly, 80% roughly of the processed rare earths that are extracted from around the world, they get processed in China and then shipped back out uh, or manufactured in China for things that get exported to European countries, to to NATO allies. And a lot of those rare earths are uh, of critical concern when it comes to weapon systems and whatnot that the NATO forces make. Uh, So there's this integration that exists and a a deep economic and and long-term security concern because of where China sits and, and the path that China has chosen lately. Uh, and certainly uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSCM, makes these really, really high-end uh, chips in Taiwan that everybody in the world with really advanced systems needs. And so a threat to Taiwan from China is 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 very concerning to the NATO alliance. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, when we, when we think about rare earth minerals— um, Often in kind of the common discourse, it has to do with iPhones and Teslas. But you're exactly right. If we're looking at these advanced weapon systems, these advanced weapon systems need these rare earth minerals, which means they need Taiwan. Um, And it's... It's, it wasn't surprising to me that the, that as the conversations concerning Sweden joining NATO um, appeared, Sweden also began to ramp up their rare earth mineral exploitation and mining, right? Um, so you can see how, how states are in NATO are 
uniquely concerned, I think, yeah. about the fact that China does have a, a, a big lead on, on the manufacture and, and use of these materials. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult situation because the world is so uh, globally connected now yeah. for supply chains. That's right. And I think uh, yeah. the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and certainly the tensions with China uh, the the establishment of by the BRICS nations Brazil Russia India China and South uh, Africa th- there are things happening in the global economic order today that are they're going to fundamentally change how supply chains work and and whatnot but we'll see how those things go so right now China's military the People's Liberation Army that's sort of a blanket term for their armed forces in general has really been testing, provoking, really seeking to intimidate Taiwan's uh, people and armed forces and certainly their political leadership as well. And, and it's been especially intense really over the last two to three years. Uh, the PLA has ramped up uh, operations significantly during that time. So I would say a, a new normal now exists that sees PLA Air Force and PLA Navy operations in and around Taiwan pretty much daily with surges of greater operational uh, combat power used now and again in what seems like sort of a protest move uh, whenever the Taiwanese government does something that Beijing is upset about. What are the ramifications for PLA operations in and around Taiwan, and why should U.S. citizens care about these rising tensions between China and Taiwan? Well, you've correctly, I think, noted probably the greatest security concern for the United States um, long term. And if there's one winner right now, in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, it's China, because the U.S.'s attention, NATO's attention, uh, Europe's attention is in dealing with that war. And China has become, over that same period, as you've just noted, um, much more aggressive in their kind of public demonstrations against against Taiwan. Um, this is a this is a significant security threat to the U.S. We just talked about the the microchip capabilities of production in in Taiwan. It's an important one. Um, but then, if we if we look forward too, in terms of of kind of China's role in that region, so Taiwan and then down into the South China Sea, um, and their ability to control traffic, um, maritime traffic, maritime traffic. Yes, exactly, and extract resources from that region and and control a significant part of of kind of the global economy in that way um this is a real test i think to um diplomacy uh in its various forms um we often think of of diplomats as just those who who kind of sit in a room and talk with each other over a, a glass of wine or port or something like that but um there's a there's an active way in which uh, the U.S. military needs to play a diplomatic role here um, and and kind of demonstrate its capabilities as well. So, yeah. so what you're really talking about is the application of the tools of national power in that's, statecraft. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So China does that incredibly well. Yeah, they they use all elements of uh, their tools of national power. And one of the areas where they really excel at is uh, operations kind of in the gray zone. Uh, and one of those places that uh, that we should just comment on before we move on is is the Chinese maritime militia that operates predominantly right now in the South China Sea. A lot of pressure on uh, on the Philippine uh, Navy. Uh, the Philippine Navy just had to actually push through uh, a Chinese blockade to get to one of their outposts 
a, a, a sunken or not sunken a, a grounded ship that has served as an outpost for the, for the for the Philippines uh, for quite some time now. That's right. Uh, but but this all of this is happening. So it's not it's not the PLA Navy. It's not even the PLA Coast Guard. It's really kind of this private, not really private, but government sponsored militia that goes out and does you know what whatever Beijing wants it to do. Yep. But there's an element of. Uh, deniable plausible deniability by beijing's part uh, for the kind of coercive uh, policies that they're enacting that coercive actions that are happening in the south china sea what what do you make of that well i think that this is a there's a long history of china pushing back against the institutional and legal order that has been designed by the united states and and the west and and elsewhere and so this is yet one more example of that and i think the way you phrased it is spot on this they're they're operating in the gray zone they're um, able to use the tools of state very effectively um, to uh push back against the Philippines and, 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 and the Philippine desire to, and, and it's a desire by the way, that was uh, defended in certain legal uh, right. actions just recently. Of course, these are Western legal institutions that supported the Philippine right. idea. Um, so I'm, that irks the Chinese, I think a little bit more because they're, they're really thinking of a, of a very different um, institutional order uh, as we move forward. So, um, yeah, the United States is going to have to up its game, quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the tools of statecraft in this particular region. And this is where the United States, I think, needs to be a little bit more innovative in terms of, of how we manage um, our relationship with China going forward. I think that we are um, we are approaching China as if it were just another state. And using those the, the same tactics that we would if if we were um, engaging in negotiations with Italy or um, Honduras, and that's that's just not going to do it. And so we've got to to redesign and rethink and reimagine um, how how we use the tools of state to manage our relationships with China. Well, Secretary uh, Gina Raimondo of uh, Department of Commerce is in Beijing right now, I think uh, still meeting with uh, Chinese government officials on issues of commerce. Uh, and I think the hope there is that that helps open the lines of communication to sort of tamp down tensions between the U.S. and China, which frankly are really heated. <laughs> they are. They are. And I'm always... I'm always happy when I see states talking to one another, yeah. even if it's in a belligerent way. <laughs> yeah. um, at least they're talking. That's right. At least they're talking. Yeah. Yep. And so my hope is that that does lead to some some additional mechanisms that can be put in place, um, like some secure secure lines and and some you know, old red phones, yeah, right, yeah. to go back to the Cold War. Yeah. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf, and we're discussing various crisis areas around the world. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Tony Lott, uh, Professor Lott, we're down to just uh, about uh, 13 minutes left in our show today. Maybe we'll run a couple minutes early, over. We'll see if that's okay with the boss. Uh, I'd like to cover three more crises areas, uh, crises for about maybe four minutes each. And I want to start with Ecuador. 
uh, candidates uh, for president in Ecuador have been getting assassinated. Uh, the country is suffering from sort of rampant gangland violence, uh, almost lawlessness in some areas of the nation at this point. How, how do you see this playing out in Ecuador? Will the next president be given a sort of a mandate by the people to deal with this rampant violence in the same way uh, Nayib uh, Bukele was given in El Salvador? I'm, I'm sure you know he rounded up some 60,000 gangland members and just threw them in prison. Right. Uh, and they're still awaiting charges or even a trial. So uh, what do you think is going to happen with Ecuador? I don't think we're going to see what we saw in El Salvador in Ecuador. Um, by the time that happened in El Salvador, the, the civil state, um, the, the kind of civil society had had really been destroyed. And, and so I think, you know, we talk often about failed states and El Salvador wasn't a failed state. But if, if we t- start talking about kind of failed civil society, I think at that point, then El Salvador was a failed civil society. There is still a robust civil society in Ecuador, but right, and and that's the that's the issue. Um, but we do see these trends towards violence, towards um, a, a greater degree of um, drug trafficking and and drug use in Ecuador, which of all of the states in that particular region, I think, is a surprise to many. Yeah. And I I must say that I I studied Latin America. Um, in depth years and years ago, and I'm not as as attuned to that region now. But I I am from from a distance also surprised at what we're seeing in in Ecuador, um, in a, in a region that is you know connected to Peru, Colombia, and then Venezuela around the corner. There, um, it, it's surprising to me that our conversation is is one about Ecuador today. But I, I see why you brought it up today, John. Well, and and I, political assassinations. That's exactly I mean, right. What is going on in what Ecuador? What is going on? Right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. How about uh, Myanmar? Uh, the military junta in Myanmar continues uh, to receive very strong support, frankly, from China and Russia, yep. uh, despite uh, incredible violence visited by the, by the military junta, the military forces, on the various ethnic groups around Myanmar. Uh, in a concerted, really offensive, meant to eliminate all opposition to the military hunters' rule. Uh, I mean, they are slaughtering villages. Uh, it's been going on now since this latest coup. What are your thoughts on this situation? And do you think, it, is the U.S. doing enough to counter Chinese influence in that part of Southeast Asia? So this is, I, I don't want to to blame the entire situation on on Russia Ukraine but I think this is another area where you see um some distraction from the United States that there the United States had very little in terms of their um their arsenal of 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 options in Myanmar uh after the after the crackdown again that that um removed civil government from from a leadership role there China in many ways, is now using Myanmar as 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 a as a laboratory, and they're able to control Myanmar's economy, Myanmar's politics, Myanmar's security apparatus uh, in ways that I don't think a few years ago we would have anticipated China being able to do. Um, so I, it, this is a this is probably one of the saddest situations that we're seeing in world politics right now. Um, the the crimes against humanity that are being perpetuated by the the military junta there. 
And we, and we can add that uh, one of the one of the things that was going on back when the Rohingya were being targeted so heavily, uh, the military junta was looking, uh, I think, to cut some deals with uh, with China, and they've done so now clearly uh, since right. since this new coup yep. uh, to start extracting. Uh, natural gas reserves out of uh, you know the areas off their coast and running a pipeline through what was held by the Rohingya right up to China. That's exactly right. Uh, so it's an economically driven kind of a thing, a deal cut between Beijing and and uh, and Myanmar to to do this. That's right. And the the U.S. policy had been to try to turn Myanmar, and it was a heavy lift at the time. <laughs> yeah. um, but the idea was you could you could open Myanmar up and include enough U.S. economic interests in the state that the junta would have to balance um, between China and the United States. And they just took it, they just, the, the military junta just decided, nope, yep. we're all in with China. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a show uh, on the global south and sort of the competition between uh, the liberal democratic orders of which the United States is part and the BRICS or, or, or really China, Russia, uh, the competition to to curry favor with countries all across the global south. I'm looking forward to that show. So second to last question, uh, Professor Tony Lott, climate change and the national security ramifications of climate change on, on global stability. This is a, we could do an entire show on this. And at the end of the month, I'm uh, in September, I'm actually going to do that. Uh, but what are your thoughts right now on the state of global affairs linked to climate change? Well, one, I'm looking forward to the next two shows then. I, I think that the the way you framed this issue with respect to kind of the the old post-World War II liberal democratic order versus the BRICS now, um, I think that's a good way to frame the conversation. And two, uh, climate change and security need uh, an entire show. And it, what we saw this past summer and what we're going to see into the future now uh, is that uh, – global climate change and the climate emergency that we're living in is going to have a profound effect on not only the South, but on all of us, right? But it's going to be most acute among the poorest of the poor. And that's where we're going to see instability. We're going to see migration. We're going to see insecurity in a number of different ways, um, economically and existentially. And uh, I remember... When I was in graduate school in the early 90s, there were, there were a series of authors who were discussing environmental issues, not specifically climate change, but environmental degradation in a number of ways and the implications for the state and for national security, and national and international security. And I'm not sure that the discipline that I've been a part of for as long as I have paid enough attention to those readings and and those scholars. And and now we, just like everybody else, are, we're going to pay the price for, for having been distracted by other important issues, but not managing climate change as, as, as much as we should have been. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about <clears throat> global stability as a whole. Uh, on a bigger picture, I'm really concerned about uh, ocean health yep. uh, because something like 50% of the oxygen we breathe is produced by plant life in the oceans. That's right. And the oceans sequester an awful lot of carbon dioxide. That's right. And the biggest protein source for humans around the world is the, the 
protein taken. Yeah, that's right. The fish taken out of the sea. Yep. Yep. So last question uh, before we get to the end of the show today. We've got about uh, five, six minutes left. Uh, A Russian moon probe uh, failed, but an Indian moon probe succeeded. It landed on, on the surface of the moon. Are we in a new space race with other spacefaring nations uh, from around the world? What does it mean for space exploration and control of the quote-unquote high ground, uh, as some refer to uh, to space and space operations? What, what, what do you what do you see the trend lines here? It, it's it's interesting to me that um, the Indian uh, rocket succeeded and and Russia's didn't. So. Um, I think that suggests where we see innovation and technology, and this is a one-off, and, and these are very complex instruments. And so the fact that that Russia was incapable of doing it, it, it might just be the case that it was just a mistake, right? Um, however, I, I do think what we're seeing is um, the opening up of space in a way that we have not seen before. There were a limited number of players, and those that were outside that limited number, they could get things into to low Earth orbit and do other things, but they certainly couldn't take on the task like the Indians just did. Um, so I think one of the issues that we're going to see is um, the the world is probably going to want to come up with a set of of new regulations and laws and and discussions around outer space law, which we had in the 1970s, but it was very limited, and most of the important states kind of stayed out of that anyways and did their own thing. Um, but it's getting crowded around the Earth's orbit now, and uh, I, and there's going to be a race for the moon and beyond and there we're going to probably want to have a set of regulations and given what's happened with the international space station and with with russia's um decision not to participate in the future i these are i think there are some real concerns about how we're going to deal with as you put it the high ground yeah china is planning on putting their own space station up uh they're also talking about a nuclear powered moon base that's right. Interestingly enough, yep. uh, by I think twenty twenty seven, twenty twenty eight, something like that is their goal. Which is quick. Yeah, that's yeah. like right around the corner. It is. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot. There are a lot of things happening in the space race. Uh, the race. I, I don't know if it's really for. It's not really for exploration. We may frame it as exploration, but in some cases, some of the countries around the world, China as an example, I think there's an economic component to it. You know, what can you get to uh, on the moon or or the asteroids that are out there, the asteroid belt, and bring those resources back to the United or to the to the planet That's uh, right. for processing? Yep. So it's going to be very interesting. I mean, you and I probably aren't going to see it, but uh, you know, kids who are in uh, high school even today, it'll be a very real thing for them to see space travel. I agree. That's right. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf in Northfield, Minnesota, thank you for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Are, are there any uh, things that you're working on right now, getting ready to publish at all, or art, new articles you're working on? Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation, as I always do. Um, I'm, I'm uh, working on a little bit of... Uh, of uh, stuff on on landmines actually so okay. it was an appropriate discussion to have today <laughs> but um yeah not specifically within the ukrainian context but looking at um explosive ordnance education training and and how that's being done and and so forth so, what what courses are you teaching at uh, st olaf this fall so i have a uh 
Peacekeeping and Humanitarian Intervention Senior Seminar, which I always enjoy teaching. It's a smaller group of students. They're majors in the political science department, and um, and we take on a, a number of the issues, actually, that we've taken on over the last hour, but we look at it from the perspective of peacekeeping and humanitarian intervention and how um, various uh, peacekeeping operations work and are effective and, and maybe are, are lacking in some of the of the tools that they need to succeed. Well, it sounds like your, your, your students at St. Olaf are lucky to have you. <laughs> so thank you, Tony Lott, for spending time with us this morning here on National Security This Week. Thank you, Jen. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.